Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. And I want to look at, together with you, a, a principle that we can see happen in churchianity. And I say churchianity because what we see ex- happening in this day and time, we see a lot of church-centered activity. And when we look at Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus' radical definition of walking with God so different than what natural man's concept of what it means. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, and let's look at this together. I want to read these verses. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus, he sees two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. What are they doing? They're casting a net into the sea. And um, while we switch out the mics here, don't you like technology? Okay, so what was he doing? He was casting a net into the sea, right? Just remember that. Okay, this is like this. Okay, he's casting a net in the sea. What does that remind you of? Casting a net into the sea. Does it sound like today's... This is on, by the way. Um, Doesn't it remind you of today's career-oriented society? Jesus comes along and he speaks to us and he says, follow me, right? And some of us, and there's there's really two audiences here. There's really two groups of people that we see. First group we see is the group of individuals that are just really occupied with their career. I'm casting my my net in the sea. What are you doing? I'm doing that 40 hours a week. And then he goes by and he, and he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Jesus must have been an incredible, I mean he is, but it must have been an incredible moment for a man that you don't even know to walk up to you and say, follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And that's the power of the word of God in a personal calling. The second group in verse 20, in verse 21, and going on from there he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their dad. What what are they doing? They're mending their nets. Do you see the difference here? Mending their nets. And he called them. So So there's one group, they are engaged in their career. They are working hard. They are doing what they do. This is their career. Then you see another group that are just in the boat, passive, inactive, with dad, and they're just kind of repairing, they're, they're, just, they're in repair mode. This is another group of people that, that are being addressed by Jesus Christ in a calling that are people that are just trying to recover from major impact in their life. And so Jesus comes and he speaks to them and he called them and immediately they left their boat and their father and they followed him. I want to talk this morning about finding the sweet spot of our calling, finding our personal call. For me personally, this means a lot because 
When I grew up as a teenager, the church that I was in talked a lot about a personal calling, that you were personally called. And there's three things I want to just talk about this morning. The first thing is that there's a difference between being between a volunteer and someone who is called. Uh, the church today is the most, I mean, if you look at the church, it's the most effective volunteer mobilizer on the planet, right? I mean, if you were able to assign a minimum wage to everyone that is volunteering all the hours that they put into a church yearly, that would make the church as one of the most richest and most wealthy economies in the world. We have it down as far as mobilizing volunteers. Yet this group, and I dare say, and I think you're going to concur with me, what we see that this group of volunteers contains the most dissatisfied and restless groups of people on the planet, right? I mean, this group of volunteers that are so busy in the church can be can be categorized as some of the most dissatisfied, some of the most restless groups of people on the planet. Why? Because we are in a, prag- in a programmatic movement that's about 35 years old. About 35 years ago, the megachurch movement began, and I'm not against megachurch, I think it's great, but, there's, but megachurch can become very programmatic. And what has happened is, is that within this 35 years, we have what, is called, uh, what we see as a movement and this is, what, this is a key word. These are these buzzwords in the church, make a church movement. Let's create a movement. And I was just thinking this morning, let's, let's like stop all movement and just get real quiet before Jesus Christ and listen to God. Amen? And these church programs need to be fed. They're massive. I mean, we need 100 volunteers for, uh, for toddlers. We need all of this. We, we have this massive program. We just need bodies to put in, and we need you to volunteer. And that's the mega church mindset. We got a plan, we got a vision, and we need you to carry that out. These programs need to be fed. And what are they fed? They're fed people. And they're fed people. And then these people can get so easily spit out the back. And we meet them all the time. I meet them all the time in this area. People that are just, you know, I was in a church for many years. And then somehow, I don't know, I got kicked to the, I got kicked to the curb. And this, what this does is this movement creates a culture of volunteerism. Okay, and I want to make a difference between the two. Why? Because volunteers, there's really no ownership in what, in what they're doing. There's really no, there's really no, like, I, this is mine. This is, I own this. And so what happens now today, 35 years later, we have... Instead of healthy sheep, we have a large mass of sheep that are injured, that are wounded, and that are not healthy spiritually, that are burnt out. So there's a massive difference between church being a culture of volunteers and a body of personally called spiritual ambassadors for Christ. Because our calling, and this is another buzzword you can hear in Christianity, our calling as a church is more than to do just make an impact in our community. You ever hear this word, impact? Let's make an impact. Um, let's, make, uh, make, let's make our city a better place. You know, God doesn't want to do, God doesn't want to just do impact, and he doesn't want to take something broken and make it better. He wants to wipe all of that out, crucify it, and he wants to transform it with brand new creation. Amen? This is the work that God is doing through the gospel. This is the work that happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants to turn the world upside down. He wants to turn our families upside down. 
He wants to turn businesses upside down and not just impact things. Because you know what? You can impact something. And just focus with me. I know there's a lot of activity in the room here this morning and walking around, but just focus with me here on this. Is that we can, we can be occupied with impact, but there's see no change. And really, change is not our goal. Transformation is really what we want to see happen. We don't want to just see, we don't want to see somebody's moral behavior be modified. Because the church is not a place where I'm, where sanctification for me is moral behavior change. But it's where I am not morally changed. I'm just transformed. I'm a brand new, I'm a brand new creature. I mean, I'm changed on the inside. Because if church is, if church is about impact and making it a better place, then we are, we are so far from hitting the mark of the gospel. We are just, we are, we are um, missing the boat. So volunteerism is, is we're missing, we're missing the uh, volunteerism is what God has not called us to. We have a personal calling. We have a personal calling. Let me just ask you a question here. Are you living in the sweet spot of your unique personal calling? Are you there? Do you, can you say that I am, when you wake up in the morning, and you think about your day, are you thinking, you know something, I'm engaged in the sweet spot of my calling? I think some people could say yes, some people could say no. Unfortunately, we see a lot of times people say yes, but they said I had to leave the local church to do it. And that's unfortunate. But there's two, there's two callings here that, we're, that we look at. Jesus is calling, which is God's longing in us to be etern- in eternal communion with him. And then there's a personal calling. And this personal calling, I like the word, I like when we think about the word calling, it's, I like the word longing. There's a longing inside of us. And if you have that longing inside of you, when you wake up in the morning and there's that longing, there's that hunger, and when you go to bed at night, it's the last thing you think, is you're hungering after this. This means that that's a calling on your life. It's something that the Spirit of God has put in you and I to hunger and thirst after God's personal calling. It's like this. It's like if you look at a boat, you can have you have two oars, right? The call of God has two aspects to it. And if you're rowing, if you're in a boat and you have two oars and you're not oaring at all, you're not rowing at all, what's happening? You're gonna drift with the culture, right? What happens if you just put one oar in the water and you're and you're rowing with one oar? What's gonna happen with your boat? You're going in circles. You know, if I understand that Jesus has called me, but I don't understand my personal calling, then I'm going to go in circles in my life. How about this? How about when both oars are in the water? When I understand that I'm personally called by Jesus Christ into discipleship, and at the same time, I have, a, I have an understanding of the global calling that God has called me into as the church. That means we're moving forward. And so, this may sound simple to you, but I want to just hit this... We are called into the global body of Christ, the church, right? The global body of Christ, which is a worldwide body of Christ. And we, we're here in the woodlands. We can see this very often, the, the, um, the, the woodlands body of Christ. But we are also called into a local church. God has called us into a local body where I show up every Sunday morning and I see your faces as a pastor and I say, I'm accountable to you. I'm here because this is a local body, and I'm here to serve you to be obedient in my, in my personal calling, because 
This is a local. This is a local body. We see this in the book of. We see this in all the epistles of, of Paul speaking about the local church. And I think today that the local church is being dumped on as something that's not important. That we can live in such a transient um, way that there doesn't. It doesn't. We don't need to have a local family. But then there's a third aspect. We understand the two. I think a lot of us, and um, you know, all of you understand. I think those first two. But the third thing, I think, is a lot of times is that Christians never discover. And this is what I think is one of the, one of the greatest tragedies in Christianity. And that is, is that there's a calling. We talked about this before I left. There's a lion that has your name on it. There's a calling that has your name on it. A personal call. A personal call to be equipped and to be encouraged by this local church. And not, to, not for us to tell you, hey, this is our vision, this is what we want to do, and we need you to do it. That is not the job of this church. This church, the job of this church is to do this, is that God brings people here as he will, not as I will, but as God will. And our job as a church is to pour into you uh, edification, the word of God, and to discern what your calling is and, get, and, and to see you get equipped so that you can go out into your world. Thinking yesterday, I was just preparing this message. The biblical picture of preaching to the church, if we could have like a graphic picture of it, would, would not necessarily be like this, where the preacher's here and everybody's looking at the preacher. I think if we were to understand the biblical picture, we'd probably have to turn all the chairs around and face out that door, looking at the door, and I would be behind you speaking. Why? Because the, the preaching, the messages that go on here are for us not to be looking at ourselves inside, but to be looking at the world out there, for us to get prepared. Like it says in Isaiah, it says that the, that the word of the Lord came to me like a voice behind me, saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. And this is what Paul said to Timothy, that you would walk in the ways that, of the preachings that had gone on before you. And so the local church, the mission of this church, and, and my pa- when I see someone get engaged, when they get rescued from like, lost wandering sheep and they get plugged into their calling I, I for me I'm, that just makes my day I mean you know I am so happy to see like to like see what God is doing in men and women in this church uh, the new new folks God's bringing in here and I'm excited about you getting plugged into your calling that for me is just the most amazing thing Volunteer, vol- volunteerism is many times, uh, it, it, I mean, people can be sincere, but how many times people volunteer without understanding of the personal call? I think somebody could volunteer because they need affirmation in their life. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're not secure in their self-image, and they and they grow up in the church, and they say, "I'm going to volunteer for this and volunteer for that until the program's over." And when the program's over, hey, thanks, that was great. The machine's going to move forward, and you find yourself like a smoking pile on the side of the road. What is the sweet spot of our calling? And I just want to, this is, the, this is the focus of what the message is this morning. When you think of, you think of that question I asked earlier, think of it this way. How many people, well, let's say, how many Christians do you think can say that I'm in the sweet spot of my call? I think it's very small. I was with a group of pastors this week, and they asked that question. How many and it really inspired this message. How many Christians do you think today can say that I am in this? I am every day in, engaged in my calling. 
and some numbers were 16%, some numbers were 10%, some numbers were less, some were two, some were one, some were less than one. I think if we look at John chapter 6, when Jesus preached to the multitudes, and they all left, and there was 12 men, that means that there's a ratio of less than 1%. I think that it's possible that there's 1% of Christians that really have discovered what their personal calling is. And if that's the case, what does that mean for church staffs? I mean, we look at churches, and you look at the staff. If you say, if we look at that, and we look at that ratio and say, look, there's only 99, there's 1% of Christians that are in the sweet spot of their calling. When you look at church staff, I wonder how much church staff shows up every morning at whatever time, 9 o'clock, goes home at 3 or 4, and they are saying, I am in the sweet spot of my calling. We met two years ago, someone here that was going to, was working in another church in the area, yet they didn't go to church there. That was their job. It was not, it was not their calling. I'm just amazed at that. I, that's incredible for me. That's, that's so incredible. What does it mean for the church staff if they are not engaged or if they're not persuaded or calling? And another question is, how can I lead other people if I don't have a personal understanding of what my personal calling is? This is where the mega movement, the mega church movement disconnects with people, okay? Is that there's a program, but there's no life. And guess what happens? You see these, you see these ragtag ref, Christian refugees floating around uh, Texas and around the United States looking for edification. They're looking for edification. Why is this the case? And how do we rectify this? Well, in the garden, there were three profound losses. In the garden of Eden, three major things were lost. And we need to understand what these three things are. And we need to understand what does the Bible say about these three things. Because the flesh and a program and, not- and, and volunteers cannot answer that. A volunteer is going to be a person that just shows up when it's their, at their convenience. Someone who understands that they have a personal calling they're, they're all in. Their heart is in it. They, are, uh, they have a sense. It's like the Levites that were cleaning, that were maintaining the, the tabernacle. These Levites, and I love this. This spoke to me in a deep way. I remember when I was in Bible college, I was cleaning floors all night. I was just cleaning toilets, cleaning other people's messes. That's beautiful, and it's lovely. And you're just cleaning everybody's mess, and that's all I did. And the worst, the, I mean, some of you will remember this, the, the, the most difficult nights was when we had a big conference. All these people show up on campus, and it's just a mess. And afterwards, like, everybody's having so much fun and so much fellowship, and then trash is everywhere, and you're like, and you just really got to check your attitude about Christians. <laughs> you're just thinking, like, lovely people. Somebody's got to clean this up. And so you're just cleaning people's mess up every night. And I remember, like, we'd be working all night. At 3 o'clock in the morning, we'd have our lunch time. We'd have our lunch and we'd be sitting there eating cold sandwiches that, it's funny, because we had so many foreigners in our Bible school in Maryland. This is in Massachusetts at the time. We had so many foreigners that they didn't know what peanut butter was. And so we'd get these, so what these foreigners would do, these foreigners, they were on a work exchange program, so they'd come to our Bible school, they'd work on staff, and they wouldn't get paid, but their school bill would be paid for, and their housing would be paid for. So you get these foreigners that were like coming from overseas like in Europe or something and you'd open up your peanut butter and jelly sandwich and there's, there's ketchup in there. 
they didn't know how to make like a, you know, they had like, you know, like they had just these different kinds. They didn't know like how the condiments went. And you're like, okay, this is what I'm going to eat tonight. And there was like nothing else to eat, you know. And like we were broke. They were broke. You know, and it was just so much fun. And I don't know why. Oh, I remember working that job and just thinking, God, deliver me from this. The chemicals were so bad. I mean, the chemicals. I remember spilling. Um, everybody, anybody ever do janitorial work here? Okay. Okay. I did. Lovely. And I remember spilling this heavy-duty industrial um, toilet cleaner on my sneakers. And it was made of hydrochloric acid. And I remember working, and my sneakers got a little wet. And they literally, as I'm working, they're like falling apart. Sneakers are just, you know, sneaker pieces are all over the floor. Then my toes started to burn, and I knew I'm in trouble. <laughs> I had to go to the hospital and everything. And I just remember working this job thinking, God, this is like, this is not my passion. I'm not, I'd be thinking about the mission field. I'd be thinking about serving God. And, you know, and then God was saying, you know what? You need to understand that this floor today, this moment, this is, this is a calling right now, and I'm working something into your life, and this is just as holy. I said, what do you mean? And then I thought of the Levites. They didn't have the glorious work that the, that the other tribes did. They didn't even have any portion in the land. You know that? The Levites had no portion in the land. It's so interesting. Theologically, it's a beautiful point because the law can't give you any portion in the land. The law can't give you any inheritance. But anyway, these Levites are serving in the tabernacle of the Lord. And I thought, that's what we do. We are serving in the tabernacle. We are serving. We are cleaning. And it became very sacred. I think that until our job, until our business, until what we do that we hate to do becomes something sacred to us, we're there until God takes us to the next stop. Next, next stop. Let's think about the sacredness of a personal call. Are you getting it? Do you understand what I'm saying? A teenager, like, you know, I asked some of the teens earlier, I said, how's school? And they're like, school is school. <laughs> I hated school. I wasn't doing good in school. I almost didn't make it. I mean, I didn't make it. And God rescued me out of it. We need a vision in our school to think, you know what, I'm a student, and this is very sacred. I have a place in this school, and people need to know what I know about God. And they need to hear about what the pastor said or the body said on Sunday morning, because what we do is sacred. Isn't it sacred? I mean, when I, when I am driving my car on Crazy 45, and that's just, as, that's just a highway that's going to hell. I mean, that's just a crazy place. I mean, that's unbelievable. And I'm driving, and you get people like... You know what's crazy here? By the way, don't beep at people, as you know. I, I learned that because I, I, <laughs> I had a motorcycle. I had a guy on a, on a Harley Davidson come around me like this with his girlfriend, and these guys had no, no, no helmet, no nothing. These guys were just, I don't know if they're still alive today or not, but they were flying. They came around, they cut me off, and I beeped. And the guy looked at me, and he goes like this. You ever see, oh, yeah. you ever see anything like that? I was like, yikes. He's like, he means he's going to shoot me, I guess. <laughs> like, don't peep again or I'm going to be dead. I should have. I should have. I said, peace, brother. I said, peace. <laughs> I'm driving down the road. I said, you know what? This is going to be sacred because I've got to have my attitude with God sacred. And there's three things that have been lost at the garden. Number one is our design. What is our identity? What's my identity? We, we're born into this world without understanding what our identity is. Who am I? What is my design? And this was lost at the garden. At the garden before the fall, Adam understood who he was. The second thing that was lost was purpose. You know what? It dawned on me about a month ago 
is that teenagers and young adults are looking for purpose. They're looking for purpose. They're looking for like the simplest thing because they want to put their whole heart into it. They're looking for a philosophy that they can believe in, that they can be excited about. I was, again, I was talking to another young person today, and they're just telling me what they're listening to. Why? Because I think young people and young adults are looking for a philosophy, something that they can die for. It's something that they can live for, something that they can die for. And that is purpose, personal destination. And then number three, the thing that we lost, we understood we lost was the garden. We lost our place. We lost our position. We lost our geographical importance. What is important to me? Like, where am I supposed to be? And these three questions can only be answered by the personal calling of Jesus Christ. And if these three callings, if these three questions are not answered in, our, in my life today as a pastor or in your life as a parent or as a young person, then we're lost. We got one oar, we got no oars in the water. We're not going anywhere. And we're, we are prime bait for the devil. So what does the word say about our design, our identity? Well, I love in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, when Jesus asks his disciples, he says, who do men say that I am? Who do people, who are, what are people saying about us? And then these different disciples say, well, some say you're like Jeremiah because you're always broken. And some others say you're like Elijah because you're always doing miracles. And then Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. This is step one about understanding our identity. Before we can understand who we are, we have to understand who Jesus is. If we look at Jesus Christ and we get enraptured and we get, involved, and we get engrossed and we become occupied with Christ, our identity is going to, is going to self-heal. It's going to self-correct. I don't need to work on my identity, right? I just need to understand who is Jesus. We were talking last night. Thursday night we had house church and that was just so sweet. It was just so sweet. I loved it. It was just, I mean, Jesus was there. It was such an anointed time. And we were just lifting up Christ and we let the woods home. And by the way, you can make it out. It's just, it's fun. We just laugh. It's a blast. It's not, another, it's not another religious program, but it's just a blast. You know, when we exalt Christ, we just, you know, sometimes we just need to open the Gospels and just read through the Gospels and say, you know, what did Jesus do? You know, what is Jesus doing here? And when we get occupied with Christ, you know what happens? We begin to see the marvelous changed uh, life-changing Christ. When Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, what happened? It changed a Hitler to an incredible apostle. What happened when Isaiah, and, and I'm amazed at this, the first five chapters of the book Isaiah, one of the greatest books in the Old Testament, Isaiah is preaching, whoa, 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 judgment, Jerusalem today is all in trouble, it's going to be a mess, you guys and then in chapter 6, verse 1, he has this incredible meeting with the face-to-face with Jesus Christ. For me, this is like, I'm thinking, okay, what is going on? Because here's a prophet, here's a man who's already engaged in this calling, and he hasn't seen Christ. He hasn't had a revelation of who Jesus Christ is. That can happen. I, we could be engaged in the call of God in our life. We can be engaged in volunteerism, and if we've never had a face-to-face understanding of who Jesus Christ is, then uh, it's just, it's, it's nothing. Our design, our personal identity, when we understand who Jesus is, and when the Holy Spirit begins to open our eyes to the magnificence of Jesus Christ, and this is my main goal 
for this church is that we would see Jesus. Not just, okay, that's a great, you know, low get slogan. Or, but no, I want us to walk out of here and say, you know what, I saw Jesus today here. In this, and, and, and if we can do that, then we've hit the mark. And if there's two people here or if there's 2,000 people here, if we can see Jesus Christ, then that's going to change your life. And so that we would see Jesus Christ high and lifted up in the presence of the throne, that we would have a throne vision in our life. When we have a throne vision, your whole ministry changes. I mean, you're anointed. There's an anointing in your life. How many Christians walk in an anointing in your life? Do do we even understand what that means? Being an anointed believer. Or do we just walk in knowledge? You know, God is good all the time. That's good. That's theology. But you know, how much has that been, has that seeped down into my soul? Or when I can't, when I don't have the money to pay for a bill, or my car is broken down, or I have relationship issues, I can say, God's grace is good in this situation. And then there's an anointing in our life. We walk around with something that is not just theology or another good program. And we begin to understand our identity. And this is when we understand that I know who I am. Before we get engaged in anything in the church, we need to first understand who are we in Christ. I'm a new creation. Old things are passed away. Yesterday has passed away. My successes have passed away. My failures have passed away. God is not even thinking about that. We're thinking when we get to the judgment seat, I have to apologize to God for all of these things. Um, when I, I went to one of the first churches I went to, was a church that didn't preach the gospel, but they preached something else. And my Sunday school teacher told me when I was like nine years old or eight years old, she said this. She said, when you get to heaven, all of your sins are going to be on a big screen. And everybody's going to see it. How many have ever heard that? Like, I, and I said, I said to the Sunday school teacher afterwards, I said, what, what, <laughs> you know, how do I reconcile that? And they said, well, you need to repent from everything that you ever did bad. I said, well, what if I forget? They said, well, it's going to be on the screen. In essence, <laughs> so, I, so I remember being going through this whole thing, like, like all afternoon that Sunday, just saying, God, forgive me for this and this. Yes. And I was so sin conscious and I was so self-conscious that this was, that just put me into a tailspin. That is not the gospel. When we understand who we are in Christ, the next thing can happen. I can begin to understand my purpose. My philosophy is this, is that if you tell someone who they are in Christ, then they're going to know what to do. The church is not in the business of telling people what to do. I, somebody sometimes, you can get counsel. You can come to us and say, hey, what do I do? But I don't think it's our place to say, hey, you need to do that, and you need to go there, and you need to do this. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That's the work of God. I remember... When I had finished Bible school, I sat down with my pastor and I said, what do you want me to do? What, what should I do? I want to do this. And he literally did not even say a word. He was like, because he knew that if he was to say something to me, I would have done it and it wouldn't have been God. And he said, you know, you just got to pray that through. I can't tell you what to do. I mean, we've poured into you. We've prepared you. We've equipped you. And now God's going to tell you. And then, and then, then I got an understanding of, I, I sensed this longing in my heart for missions and to preach the gospel on foreign soil. And I began to think about that. That was the longing in my heart. That was this vision. That's what I thought about. And I went back to my pastor and said, you know, I want to be a missionary. And he being my pastor, he, under, he discerned that that was God's will. He said, amen, that's great. I'm behind you. Let me know how we can pray for you and support you. And so when we understand who we are, we don't understand what our purpose is. Teenagers, young people, we need to understand who we are first, and then God's going to give us a sense of purpose. 
And, then, and you know what? When I understand what my purpose is and I get engaged in my purpose, guess what? We start saying things like this. I was built to do this. I was made for this. How many of us can say that? I was made for this. I was made to be engaged in this. When I think about our ministry here in Houston, I wake up, I love what I'm doing here. I mean, going overseas is great, but this is where God has me. I love meeting people. I love going out for coffee with people. I love talking with people about things going on in their life. I was made to do this, and I love it. And when we begin to understand our purpose, then God begins to show us location. God begins to show us location. I love how Jesus does this at the end of every gospel. He gives us, he gives the great commission. And this great commission is this. You go out into all the world, preach, teach, make disciples. But does he say, does he give us a geography? He really doesn't. Why? Because he wants you and I to think about what we've heard from the word. Look at the world through the eyes of Christ. If we heard that song that Johnny sang, that we would look at the world through the eyes of Christ and say, you know what? That's where God wants me. And then when we make that decision, there is that affirmation from the Holy Spirit. I just want to say that if you don't know exactly everything about your personal calling or what you're supposed to do, get engaged with where you are. Just get engaged. Just say, you know something? I sense that I have a gift in this area of my life to serve, to share, to pray, to do this or to do that. Because first we understand who we are, then we understand our purpose, and then when we begin to serve where we are, our steps are going to be ordered by the Lord. And in two, ten, two years to ten years later, you're going to be right where you're supposed to be. Does that make sense? Live with a personal calling. Because when we live with a personal calling, we have this kind of interesting feeling. Somebody said it the other day. And it was even a secular person who said it. And I said, that describes my life so well. They said that I live like a billionaire. I feel like a billionaire. I feel I have this sense of wealth like a billionaire. But I'm living from paycheck to paycheck. When you and I are engaged in the personal will of God... When we're engaged in our personal calling, we're going to sense a fullness. We're going to sense like a fullness. We're going to sense a um, we're going to sense uh, an affirmation from the Holy Spirit. We're going to walk away edified. If you and I are engaged in something that's not edifying, then we need to check our yes/no filter. I'm going to close with this. What are some of the roadblocks to our personal calling? Does this sound kind of elementary to you? Does this sound kind of basic? Roadblocks. I think there's four. Number one, I think that people, because they don't know what their personal call is, or they're not moving in that direction, they don't know what to say yes to, and they don't know what to say no to. They don't know what to say yes to, and they don't know what to say no to. Take what you know about your personal call, and let that be the filter to how you say yes and no to things. Because otherwise, we turn into a we turn out to a burnt out volunteer. Secondly. What's another roadblock from discovering what our personal calling is? Satanic lies. Just noise and confusion. The devil wants to just create such a ruckus and so much confusion in our heads about our life, the details of our life, and what's going on in our life, that we never discover the awesome personal plan of God. Last night I met um, a, a woman, Vanessa, at the, um, at the acoustic night. And I was talking with her, a friend of Esther, and it was such a divine appointment because here's a woman, and hopefully someday we can meet her, and if she comes, I'd like her to tell her story. And she just said, you know, I was married to a man, we were missionaries in the Soviet Union, 
and we lived in the Soviet Union, and we served there, and she just said, she was saying this with so much, with her whole heart, and she said, we served there. And then we moved to Africa, and then my first husband died in Mozambique, and then God gave me another husband who's Iranian, who's Persian, and we lived in Iran as missionaries, and we owned property there, and we began to talk about missions, we began to talk about God's heart for the nations, and it stirred me up that we have a personal calling. And this woman, when I finished talking with her, I understood that here is a woman that understands what her personal calling is. And you know what? When you are personally called and you come off the field, and I'm not saying that she's out of the will of God. I'm just saying that this can happen to you. Maybe you've been in ministry before and you come out of ministry and you kind of have like this little bit of discontentment, like a little bit of restlessness. I've experienced it. At that moment, we just need to seek the will of God Seek the face of God and say, say, Lord, put me where you want me to be, even if it means that I don't have everything I want. Noise and confusion. The devil's going to lie to you about, you know, young ladies in the room here, the devil's going to lie to you about who you are. The devil's going to say to you, you're ugly. You need to be like this. You need to weigh this much. You need to wear these kind of clothes. You need to have this kind of color hair. And this is what you need to look like. That's a lie. It's a lie. We need to discover, you need to discover who you are in Christ and discover your true beauty and who you are. Here's the third thing, and I think this is really big, and we never discover our personal calling because we have the wrong scorecards. We're, measure, we're measuring things with the wrong stick. It's like we're using the metric system when we need to be using the imperial system. We, we need to be using God's divine rule about how am I measuring my life. Maybe one day we could preach about that, but how am I measuring success in my life? You know, how am I measuring, like, how am I measuring my life? The world measures it this way. It has its own, it has its own description of what is, what is winning and what is losing. I don't care what the world has to say about my life and the way I'm making my decisions. I want to live to please God and I want to walk with God. Because if we have the wrong scorecards, we're going to be like walking in a direction that doesn't even mean anything. We're going to be building a ladder, climbing a building... And when we get to the top of the building, we're going to realize that my ladder was leaning against the wrong building. And then the fourth thing is, is that people take their talent, people take their gift, people take their portion of who they're supposed to be, and they bury it. Why? Because of fear and because of the details of life. Now, I think here with us, I don't know if there's people struggle with fear, but I can tell you, as I know, that we live in an American culture and people bury their talent because of the details of life. They're just, we are so inundated with what's going on in our domestic world. I mean, we are just run over by the machine of, of the American lifestyle. Do you guys feel that way? I do. I feel like that sometimes I'm just like flat out under the steamroller of, of, my, of the system of the American lifestyle, and that even if I wanted to, I'm trapped and I can't do anything. I think that if we take authority over our life, we take authority over the details of our life, and we say, I'm the I am G Jesus is the king in my life, and we're gonna, I'm going to administer my life under the rule of the Holy Spirit and the rule of the kingdom of God. And, I'm, and, and there are just some things that are really important in the world, but are just really not important in my household. And that is, is, that, is that we would exalt Jesus Christ. I'm not going to bury my talent because I disqualify myself in some way. Like, okay, I did that 20 years ago. I can never serve God. Well, guess what? Look at David. <laughs> You know, look at Rahab, okay? Let's not bury our talent, and let's, by faith, step up um, 
and let's reveal Christ. And when we, and, and how do we do that practically? We just look at Jesus Christ. We get a glimpse of who he is. The devil would love to get us so busy for God that we would never see Jesus. That happens all the time. I'd rather have subpar performance, but exaltation and occupation with the beauty and the magnificence of Jesus Christ than to have a sacrificing of Christ for, like it's what Judas said. He said, this anointment could have been used to be sold and given to the poor. And Judas missed, Judas missed Jesus. He missed, he missed the beauty of who Christ was. I just want to bow our heads for a second here and um,